Tim Goldstein, autistic adult and your host for Life in a Neurotypical Universe, where we take a look at life from the perspective of an autistic adult. everybody, and welcome to another episode of Life in the Neurotypical Universe. Today, we have Jeannie Love, and this is kind of unique because I've never had somebody that does what Jeannie does on the episodes. So Jeannie is actually a uh, ADHD and autism coach. Now, I've had lots of people asking about being coached, but I've never had a coach on. So Jeannie, tell us about yourself and how did you get involved? What brought you to being uh, involved with neurodiversity and being a coach? Thanks for having me. And I'm excited to talk to you about my work. Um, my background is, well, we'll shave off some of it and see if we need to get back to that. But there's a roundabout path that led me to working in uh, with special needs students in public high school. My my background is I have a physical therapy degree. That was what it, my first degree was. And I decided to move to Colorado, came a ski bum for a little while, didn't really pursue uh, working in physical therapy. And in fact, I liked being in this rural ski area and the kind of physical therapy I wanted to practice was not sports injury. I wanted to work with patients who had had strokes in a rehab setting. So now when I look backwards, I've always been interested in the brain and how the brain works. So this roundabout past led me not to continue in physical therapy. I ended up working with students in schools and I worked with some very high need students to start with because of my background. So I was working with students who had cerebral palsy, um, nonverbal autism, Down syndrome, other you know, very low incidence, but high impact disabilities. So I did that for a little while. And then the opportunity to move into teaching came along. So I became the teacher, got my special ed teaching degree. Then I moved out of that sort of student caseload into more higher functioning students with dyslexia, ADHD, higher functioning autism wasn't really even a thing back in those days quite yet um to be identified as having autism you really were very severely impacted back in those days so about 20 years well no about 15 years in a public high school and then my husband and my daughter and i had an opportunity to move to south america and i was a teacher for an autistic student there for five years that was a really amazing experience uh, for me, especially because I had only one student for this really unique situation that I was in. And I was a little bit, I was nervous about having all of my attention and all of my work revolving around only one person. But what I found was that I was able to, all of the plans that I had for my students who were in the public high school were usually kind of squashed and covered up by, we just got to get through high school. We got to survive. We got to get the grades, that kind of thing. And so behavior plans or emotional regulation plans or just problem solving plans that I would build for my students, those would kind of be lost along the way. So, but here I got to implement my program for five years and my student made these, just these profound uh, life skill gains. And it was this really amazing experience. So 
that ended in 2020, partly because of COVID, but partly because of we were ready to return back to the U.S. And at the time, my daughter, who is now 10, she was having some emotional regulation problems of her own. She just, yeah, was struggling and it was I really wanted to turn my attention to her. And I, when we returned to the U.S., I didn't think going back to public education was going to be the, allow me the time and the energy that I needed to give to her. She needed more flexibility. She needed more emotional energy from me. And I knew teaching wasn't going to give that to me. So I started to just research. What am I going to do? I've got this set of skills. Who's hiring? What's out there? What's happening? And I sort of stumbled across, you know, this growing number of adults who are primarily identifying themselves as having ADHD or autism. And I thought, well, this is something I've been doing for a really long time. I wonder if I have something to offer them. And so I threw myself out there as a coach and started getting clients. And so I've been doing this for a while. I love it. And it turns out that I do have something to offer adults who are learning later in life that they have ADHD or autism and looking for all the skills and strategies and techniques that they didn't get to have when they were in school. They didn't get to learn that. So now I'm, I get to teach that to them. So that's that's the path of being where I am right now. Interesting. Interesting. What a uh, winding path around the world. Uh, mm. uh, <laughs> You know, this is uh, pro- probably uh, totally, uh, I don't know, b- bad comment, but it, it just hits me. So so what was it? Was this kid like uh, the kid of a drug lord or something? I mean, hire one uh, American that, sorry, we, I'm sure we can get no. somebody less expensive <laughs> somewhere, you know, go down to uh, Chile and uh, teach uh, one person for five years. It was, um, I worked for a copper mining company. Okay. And they had some small schools uh, because their, their family, they would move the families in and out at random times uh, based on the work that the parents were doing. So it didn't align with the school year necessarily always. And so they would have these small schools to make it uh, very comfortable and easy for the families to move in and out of the the U.S. curriculum. And so they brought this, this family down who had an autistic son. And so they hired me to, to support him. Interesting. And it ended up being, I thought it was just going to be sort of a short term thing, but it ended up moving us from Chile to Peru and it was really great. What, what kind I mean, amazing company that uh, cares enough about their employees and their families to go to that extent uh, to make sure the family's taken care of so the employee can focus and get down to the, the work that they need them to do. Uh, that, that's pretty it cool. It was a very very unique experience and yeah i feel very lucky to have been a part of it so going into the whole uh, so you you picked up most of your skills uh well first thing is you went from physical therapy which is kind of funny there's a, a woman that i've worked with and uh, she's no longer in denver but she was in denver she's now in the east i think she's in north carolina i don't know it's east. Uh, <laughs> east of the Mississippi. I don't know. Somewhere there. Uh, Liz Green. And uh, she actually is uh, doing um, autistic uh, neurodistinct training for companies. Uh, and she is a physical therapist. So I don't know. There's something about physical therapists that leads to uh, uh, autism, I think. Uh, but Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, kind of kind of strange. But how do you see, what do you see as being different between when you were teaching with the children, obviously with the children, first off, we have the focus of schools. And I had the um, 
I, I don't know what the uh, right uh, adjective to describe mm-hmm. it quite is. But I, I did work for uh, one of the uh, larger public school systems around Denver on a contract basis. Uh, my, my background is in, uh, or at least at that time period of time, was in data and data analytics. So they hired me in the assessment department to prepare a whole lot of uh, reports for the state and the feds for obviously funding and, and such. Mm-hmm. So it became quite obvious to me uh, from working there that there was one focus and only one focus that the school was all about. And that was these numbers that go into the state and the Fed better look good. Yeah. (laughs) And obviously, I think we all know that uh, kids now are being educated to pass tests. They're not necessarily being educated to function in the world. Uh, and, And I'm guessing now when you take that part away, which when you're dealing with an adult, we're... Yes, there's job duties, but uh, that's a little different than going into school where the whole focus is uh, we have to have you get a good grade so the teacher looks good and the school looks good. Yeah. So, yeah. so other than that kind of part of you had to obviously not put the focus as much on where you wanted as what the school demanded you, you do. How do you see the difference between working with the adults in, in neurodiverse, in neurodistinct area than you do uh, working with kids? When I was teaching, the kids that I resonated most were high school students. So I, I, all of my work was with high school students. And by that time, by the time they get to high school and they, they're just tired, they're tired, they're beat down, you know, and as we just talked about, it's just like, it's just like survival. I just got to get through this so that I can move on with my life. And so it's sad and it's survival. What I love working with adults is one, well, there's a lot of things, but one is that they are finding a sense of relief for finally understanding who they are and how their brain works. There's this sense of clarity, like, thank God, I'm not crazy. I under, I truly understand how my brain works. So I love that. So there's like this ownership now. The other thing that I love about that is that they're like, okay, now let's go. So what, what are we going to do? Let's, they're ready to take action. So they're not tired. They're not beat down. They're ready to take action. And so, and they're very involved in it. The, the coaching that I provide is very collaborative. I want to make sure I'm going to, we're going to go through some of my strategies. I'm going to suggest them. We're going to talk about whether or not you think they might work. Try to figure out how do they fit into your life, your goals, and we'll do it together. And then we'll come back. And we'll talk about what worked and what didn't work and we'll fine tune and refine and, and tweak and add more. And we'll just, we'll continue to plug away at this until you feel like I got this. And so it's very like proactive. It's very active. It's action oriented, ready to go. And that's what I'm really enjoying about it. It's this complete pivot away from just like, just get me through this to I'm ready. Let's, let's get moving. I want to understand my brain better. I want to make changes, get the techniques and the tools so that I can be my best in my work and my personal life and my relationships. Yeah. Interesting. So that, Interesting. that to me is the big difference. That's what I love. So what do you see when you're working with obviously ADHD and uh, autism? If we go to the, the DSM or bit much, you know that there's a lot of overlap and there's actually challenges at times diagnosing is it a or is it b so what do you see though as a difference between the two or is there different approaches you need to use is there different strategies sometimes i don't 
know that I'm doing this, but I've been doing this for so long that I, I don't know the techniques that I have. It can be hard to speak to that because I've just been doing this for so long. But I think I just look at it like I've got this, I've got this toolkit of, I've got these evidence-based strategies that are specifically geared to executive functioning. So if that is something, you know, time management, procrastination, prioritizing, that sort of thing. If that's where you're struggling, then then we'll work on that. I also have this sort of program for emotional regulation. So if you're someone who, like I have a client right now who just like immediately impulsively, the response is, is anger or frustration. So kind of a twi- quick trigger. So I, so, okay. So we'll work on that. That's what she needs. She needs to get that under control so that then we can start to build some other skills that she needs as an autistic woman. Many of my clients, most of my clients are coming with some baggage from having struggled so much in their school years and in their early working life and not understanding their brain. So I've got a little bit of a program that kind of helps to let go of that negativity that you're carrying and build new neural pathways that are a little bit more forward looking, a little more positive, a little more creative and curious about how we can look at things a different way. And so I don't treat autism, I don't treat ADHD. I just, this is a program that I have. And if, if what you're looking for falls into that, then I'll, we'll start to kind of chip away at what you need. That, that's something and, that I, I always talk about in the, in the corporate world. Because when you do a neurodiversity talk and the, you know, the, the problem in the corporate world is uh, you can't just go ask the employee, uh, are you autistic? Do you have ADHD? Uh, so you've got to kind of figure out how are you going to work around it, even though you're 99% sure they fall into you know, one of those categories. And what I always say to them is just focus on the behavior. Who, yes. who cares? Maybe they're neurotypical, but it's still a problem with the behavior. Who cares what is causing it? Maybe they had mean parents. I don't know. what it is. But it's the behavior that's the problem. And if you focus on the behavior, which it sounds like what you're doing is you, you pick the behavior. Okay, executive function. That's the behavioral issues that they're having are all revolved around executive function. Who cares why they have those? Here's ways we can work with executive function challenges. So I, I, I love that, yes. uh, of focus on the problem, don't focus on uh, this uh, name pinned on the poor person. Uh, you, you'll, get me on, you'll get me on one of my soapbox things about how diagnoses <laughs> are uh, 90% uh, bullshit. Sorry, medical world, I love you to death, but, uh, but we need to uh, refigure how humans think. Yes. <laughs> because it, it is, as, as you know well, it's... It, the DSM is a Chinese menu. Pick your Chinese menu of what thing happens to fit, and then any given person on any given day could come up with a different diagnosis. Go to a different, uh, you know, different uh, provider, and they will give you a different diagnosis. So it, it certainly isn't cast in stone. It makes so much more sense to me just do exactly what you're you're saying. Is good. I, I can help you if it's executive function that's your challenge. Good. I, I have. Things I can help with executive functions. I have things that can help in, in these other areas. And really, yes. you don't care why they have it. You just know these are the areas we need to work on to help you be better in life, feel better, perform better. 
stop uh, hating yeah. everybody else in the world. Uh, <laughs> that, that was my version, actually. Um, I, I didn't question how my brain worked. My brain worked fine. I had no problem with my brain. But, but the world was stupid. Yes. And, and um, I, I do resemble the remark about uh, being on a hair trigger. Uh, lots of people would uh, uh, say, yep, you just uh, named him. <laughs> uh, so uh, I certainly do uh, recognize uh, that one as being a huge challenge. Um, you know, it, yeah. it, it really is interesting because uh, my wife actually was diagnosed as ADHD, I don't know, maybe four years or so ago. So uh, it's been what, about nine years since I was diagnosed with uh, autism. So after I was diagnosed with autism a number of years, she got diagnosed with ADHD. And my daughter was actually just diagnosed with ADHD. I think they gave her the diagnosis, I don't know, a couple months ago. And uh, uh-huh. she, she just turned 36, so she's not, not, not a youngster by any means. And I, I was diagnosed at 54, so I think that makes my wife got diagnosed at, I don't know, probably like 58, 59, 60, I don't know, somewhere around there. It seems to me that what I'm seeing there is not particularly unusual, that there's lots of adults that are either getting diagnoses through whatever manner, and it seems it's often their kid got diagnosed and they're sitting in listening to the psychiatrist or therapist or whatever. And as they're going through the different things, they're going, hmm, ooh, that sounds like me. Oh, yeah, hmm, yeah. (laughs) And it seems like that's one big way that happens. And and the other thing that's happening now more is neurodiversity is is growing and there's more neurodiversity uh, awareness and presentations around it. As people, as they listen to those, are going, ooh, that sounds like me. Oh, I, I have those problems. And then they dig into it and either self-diagnose or uh, yes. sometimes uh, go through the crazy things an adult you have to to uh, get an actual real diagnosis. Yes. So are you seeing, are you seeing that where there is a lot uh, larger number of adults coming with diagnoses? And the other question that goes with that is, do you see a difference between male and females as far as late diagnoses as far as the prevalence of of late diagnoses? So first, I do see adults diagnosing themselves because of the screening that their child gets. So that is absolutely common. That has happened with my clients. Uh, The second thing is, yes, there's so much more information out there. There's so many more people speaking about having autism or ADHD. And although I am not qualified to diagnose anyone with anything. I have so much experience with this that I find that when they diagnose themselves, they're usually pretty right. Like it's in my experience, it's like, aha, I get it. That's me. And and then from what I observe with them and from the experience I have working with other clients, with high school students, I'm like, yeah, I think you're pretty right on. Another thing that I see Again, purely my opinion, because I cannot diagnose anyone with anything, is uh, some misdiagnoses. So maybe some people that I think are maybe somewhere on the spectrum have been diagnosed a long time ago with ADHD. Again, before we really were diagnosing higher functioning people with autism. So there's that that's going on. And then I'm sorry, I got, but I lost the last part of your question. I feel like there were three points. Yeah, the, uh, the, the balance of uh, male versus female uh, oh, in, yeah. in adult diagnoses. Uh, are you seeing it occurring more in, in one gender than in the other gender? What I know is that the people coming to me 
are, are most are more than 50% women. And I don't know if it's because I'm a woman, but as you said before, there's not a lot of people doing what I do. So I don't know why it is that it's more, more of my clients are women, but that is the case. Well, there, there's, there's quite a bit of, uh, of evidence, actual real scientific yes. studied kind of evidence of females just not being diagnosed until later in life. Uh, the average diagnosis age is much older. And as you say, this whole thing with being higher functioning, which I, I hate the term higher functioning personally, but uh, right. I, 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 yes, I'm it, sorry. Oh, no, that's OK. It, it, it's, it's out there. It's a term that is used. I what I prefer to use uh, when when I think about it <laughs> is high support or low support because yes to, exactly to me that gives a little better indication when you're dealing with particularly if you're trying to deal with explaining this to somebody else not the person who is having the challenge saying high functioning what I mean am I, am I supposed to walk in and I can multiply twenty seven digit numbers in my head I mean is that high functioning or what what is high functioning I don't know what high functioning is. But high support or low support is, oh, they're going to need, like, we're going to have to do a bunch, or there's probably just going to be a few little things we need to do. So it just seems to me to give a little better indication of the challenges this person may face versus talking about it as uh, being functioning, which I don't think tells, I don't think it tells any of us, <laughs> even people who are medical professionals, what's it tell them? They don't know. They need to know like specifically, okay, it's this, it's this, it's this, it's this, that's the challenge. Yeah. And I like, I'm really referring back to like 20 years ago when I started teaching high school students and, you know, the students who were identified as having autism were just very behaviorally and communicatively challenged. I mean, so that is, and so you're absolutely right, you know, higher functioning, lower functioning, it's like very old vocabulary. And so we'll go, yeah, steer away from that because, and then on any given, then you can just go back to neurodiversity on any given day. Who's to say what is high functioning and low functioning, depending upon the, the challenges of life that you're in, you know, right now, whether it's with families or work or your social environment. I mean, it's all uh, just another label. Yeah, but, uh, I yeah. always uh, talk about. I don't care. I, I talk about in the workplace, for instance, that to me, one of the things people should do when they're going to communicate, particularly managers, is they should gauge the person's level of anxiety at the moment. Mm. And if maybe this person's neurotypical, they're just as normal as can be, but the, the coffee got spilled all over the front of whatever their favorite clothes were they're going to wear that morning. Uh, for, for the people who still go to the workplace, that is. For us uh, people who work from home, we really just don't care <laughs> about that stuff. But, uh, <laughs> but they dumped the coffee down the front of themselves. Uh, they, they had to take the kid to daycare and uh, the, the daycare provider was, was like not answering the door and they got hung up there. The, the, the car uh, was, was like on fumes and they had to stop and get gas and they hadn't planned in stopping and getting gas. And, and they show up at work and they're just a wreck. Yeah. The reality is, is their executive function is shot already. Uh, their emotional coping capability shot already. So it's just not a very good time to have a conversation that fits something that really matters other than, geez, I see you're really just stressed out and not having a good day. Maybe you should like go take a break for two hours and you know, go walk around the building 17 times. <laughs> 
but uh, I think that's a big thing that people don't consider is it, it's situational. It varies by day. It varies by time. It varies by what's been going on in your life in the last day or week or couple of hours as to how you're going to show up no matter who you are, whether you have autism, ADHD, whether you're neurotypical. And yeah, I mean, that, that is, a, I think, a, a big thing is just getting... A, that the person themselves to understand some days are going to do better than other days. And trying to get the world as a whole to understand uh, some days all of us do better than other days, no matter what, who we are, where we come from. Yeah, I think that's so great. You know, I am trying to to branch out a little bit into doing some education in the workplace about what is neurodiversity and specifically with my experience with ADHD and autism and it's just, yeah, a baseline understanding this expectation that we've all got it together all the time. How about if we just kind of let go of that and start to see shades like this is like beginning education. Like, let's just start to see shades of, yeah, there are times that we don't have it together. And so how can we support each other to we've all got strengths, we've all got weaknesses. Let's stop faking Let's all of us just stop faking that we're good at everything and start to open up a little bit better and seeing shades of strengths and weaknesses and how we can just support each other a little bit more. That, that makes me think and of that, uh, a, a saying that just deals with life that, uh, that there, there's, a, you, I'll make the parallel out of it because by, by itself it doesn't make sense. But there was a saying I heard that uh, describes life as being uh, extreme long periods of sheer boredom interspersed with very small periods of total terror. And I think the way it translates it means is uh, most of the days, most of us are about uh, middle of the road average. And uh, some days we have some brilliance that shows up. <laughs> yeah. So what can we do to um, to really bring out more days of brilliance? That's what I'm interested in. Yeah. I, I Again, my, I personally think, and it'd be interesting to see how this you know, compares with some of your approaches and such, uh, stress. I, I think stress is the, the number one yeah. thing that... Uh, uh, I, I think it, it works on a number of, of different avenues. I think one is continual stress just wears you down. You just don't have the energy anymore to do much more than just get through. Kind of like the high school students you were you were describing. Mm-hmm. You, you just get to the point of, just, geez, get me through today, man. I'm just like, I got nothing. Um, to the things where it's the the very short periods of very high stress, which then I think tend to exasperate any particular thing we have. I, I, I sometimes use this explanation of if you take individual human traits, and, and I'm convinced there are no such thing as ADHD traits or autism traits, they're all human traits because we can find them in anybody. Yes. Now, they may show up at un- uncommon values, I'll agree, but they're still the same trait. So I, I, I came up with this idea of thinking of them as uh, being thermometers. So each individual yeah. trait is a thermometer. And now there's red thermometers and blue thermometers. And, and the reason there has to be two colors is some traits are bad when there's too little of them. And some traits are bad when there's too much of them. And, and to make the uh, whole illustration work, they both have to go up when they get bad. So that's why there's blue ones, which uh, are the, you're less and less as you go higher. And so it's, in other words, it's a negative number uh, thermometer. So we, we just took the thermometer and turned it around. That's all. And... Uh-huh. If you take anybody's set of thermometers for the normal traits that we would consider to be uh, problematic in in the workplace or in the school place or pretty much any place, and you just set them on a surface, 
most people, if they're chilled, calm, the, the traits don't hit this line. I just refer to it as clinically significant. Um, and I should probably shouldn't use the you know clinically, but uh, significant enough that it bothers people. Maybe that's a better way, but it, it's long to write that on a slide. So I just say clinically significant. <laughs> And most people, I mean, there's some people that have some traits that are, are, are exceeding that on a normal basis. But uh, for most people, I think most people can, they can get by, okay. But then you start putting in different levels of stress and you've got the deadlines of work. And that just takes and to me, raises the whole surface up. You might not have moved the thermometer a tiny bit, but you raise the surface it was sitting on and the line that means you're in trouble didn't move though. And then you put in, oh my gosh, my social media is not as good as your social media and your vacation was so much better than my vacation and now I'm stressed out because my vacation sucked and yours was so wonderful from your social media pictures. Of course, I didn't know that you took a whole photography crew and got these like, gorgeous pictures. But uh, <laughs> So really, the, the idea being that maybe sometimes it's not that it's an individual trait that is the issue. The problem is, is we've shoved so much junk underneath it that we've taken what would be normally fine and now made it a problem because we've pushed everything up higher. Yeah. And then I think if you, if you put on top of that, the, the fact that there are areas that your brain is just like not as good at shifting between tasks or, um, like having the right chemicals in your brain to motivate you to do the thing that you don't want to do. Or that the amount of energy that it takes to do a task is more than, than what a neurotypical person, the, the amount of energy that it takes them to do that task. And so then you've lifted it even higher and yeah exactly you, you've just right. freaking out you've taken things that normally wouldn't be a problem and they've become a problem because of these other situations yeah and yep. unfortunately in the workplace they don't consider the other situations they just look at it and say you are a problem because of and they pick one of the thermometers that's you know the one that's sticking up yep. now and it's only sticking up because they just laid off half the company. You don't know if you're going to get let go, uh, on and on and on. They've, they've reorganized. You've had 12 manager shifts in the last three weeks. <laughs> but all those kinds of things. Um, and then it makes it seem as if there's a huge problem in a specific area when the reality is you just like burned out. I mean, you just have nothing left. Uh, yes. Everything is an issue. Yeah. And so I was recently speaking to a woman who just has reached that point of burnout several times over her life. And that was when she left that job and had to take a break and then go back and get another job and, you know, have to do that four four times over the, the life of her career. And she's got many years left, so she's not by any means near retirement. And so that's where the how can we, how can she understand who she is, how her brain works, communicate that to the people around her? And then she said, so she finds out that she has autism and, you know, gets up the courage to tell her employer that. And then they say, okay, so what do you need? And she's like, I don't know what I need. Right. <laughs> so this is, I, I, I don't know. 
I've just found this out about myself and, but that doesn't mean that I have the answers now. And so now it's like this self discovery. What can I, what can I do with this? You've uh, hit upon the, um, the corporate uh, accommodations conundrum of you, you finally get to the point, and this is if you have a diagnosis. Now, what happens if you don't have a diagnosis? So, in other words, if you don't have a diagnosis, we really don't care if you're performing it the best you can because we're not going to do anything because you don't have a diagnosis. Well, that seems a little short-sighted, but um, yeah. you know, so be it. But we'll, we'll go down the path of somebody who does have a diagnosis. They get up the gumption finally to go ask for an accommodation, which is a scary thing to do. Yeah. Uh, that's probably the first person other maybe than family and some immediate close friends that they probably are telling. Uh, most people don't stand in front of a group of 200 and, and just say outright, uh, hey, I'm autistic. That's, that's how I did my first right. public uh, disclosure. It was in, in front of 200 people. Um, I didn't know most of them, so I didn't care anyways. Who cares? Uh, but uh, So it's scary. I mean, you're going to, this is your, these are the people who uh, who pay you. They, uh, they usually are accommodations as part of HR. Uh, this is going to be part yes. of your record. Um, so it's a scary yes. thing. So you go there. And even if they are the most wonderful, nice, amazing people in the world, which usually they are, uh, I, I know quite a few heads of accommodations at Fortune 500 companies, and they're really nice people. I mean, they, they really want to help. They're not jerks um, by any means. But the problem is, in the corporate world, as soon as you say accommodation, they trigger ADA, which triggers lawsuit, 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 um, and, and the lawsuit lights go on. Yeah. So, so now it has to be handled in this very inflexible and strict manner to make sure that they have crossed every T and dotted every I and can't get sued. And the first thing that usually happens is the person does divulge and uh, you know, says that they, they have whatever and that they need some kind of accommodation. And the person that they're talking with says, okay, what do you need? And the person who came in asking for the accommodation says, I don't know what's available. And the person who they're talking to says, um, well, we, we don't have a list of what's available. What do you need? <laughs> and, right. And, and then eventually you, you get handed this form uh, that you take to your doctor, and normally you'd be your psychiatrist probably, uh, and you, you go into your psychiatrist and you say, I went and asked for an accommodation at work, and I, I don't know really what I need, and they said I need to bring this form to you and have you fill out with what I need. And the doctor looks at you and says, okay, what do you need? <laughs> Because exactly. they don't know. I mean, they All they know is when they see you in the office, it was quite obvious uh, to them from either using some of the different assessments or just their own personal experience and years of experience with it that you had one of these conditions. But they don't know what you have in the day-to-day grind and what your day challenges are at work and all that kind of thing. So the way it always ends up is they just ask you, okay, what do you need? What do you want? I'll, just tell me what you want. I'll put it down. <laughs> yep. So you, you just tell them what you think you want and, and then you take it back and then they get to decide whether or not they want to give that to you or not, which it seems to me to be a, a, a massively broken system uh, from a number of standpoints. First off, we, we eliminated 
the majority of humans who don't have a diagnosis. Yes. Uh, why don't why don't we want all of our employees to perform the best they can if we could just make a little change in their routine or life or work piece or whatever? Um, and then secondly, I always wonder, why can't the the company give a list of what some common accommodations are? They're not saying authoritatively, these are the only accommodations. They're saying, here's some common accommodations for your condition. And I, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, site uh, askjan.org. No. Oh, you, oh, 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 you got to write it down. Um, it's just ask, A-S-K-J-A-N-J-A-N.org. And okay. it's maintained by uh, the some branch of the federal government. And I was actually on a call with one of the guys in that department. I can't remember what department he's in. Uh, <laughs> I was just on the call with him like last week. Um, there goes my executive function. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, but it's, it's a, federal, a federally provided resource. And the, what you want to go to is at the top of it, uh, it says A to Z. So the letter A and then T-O and then Z. And just click on that. And when you click on it, it will take you then to a list down in the, the body of it. There's some heading information and paragraph or two. But then in the body, it has it by condition. So it has autism, ADHD, Tourette syndrome, and it also has lots of physical disabilities. So was, they're intermixed. They're not separated in. They're in there alphabetically. That's why they're A to Z. Uh, <laughs> and Above that section, though, it's not real obvious. There's little tabs, and you can click on one of the tab, and uh, there is one by the, and I can't remember how they name it, but the area of challenge. So in other words, what's the problem? Is it executive function? Is it task completion? Is it, so you can look at it that way also instead of looking at it by condition. And then there's ones uh, that are uh, work role related. So in other words, by work role and work role, this work role, here's things that often help in this particular type of role. And then I can't remember the fourth one because there's four different ways you can search it. Uh, the answers are all the same answers, but they're just categorized right. different ways to get there. And most things in there cost little to nothing. It, it's the right. give them noise canceling headsets. Okay, this costs what you know eighty nine dollars nowadays or something like that. Uh, other ones are just communication kind of things, such as yes. write down the, what you're asking the person. Well, geez, that seems like yes. a pretty big. Why, why do I need a diagnosis to ask my manager? Can you write down what you're asking me? Because I can't remember out of the twenty things you just asked me, which one was the first most important. Yeah, <laughs> this is. This is what we ran. This is what we found in education that whatever we would come in and suggest for the student in the classroom. So we have a conversation with the classroom teacher, say, you please do these things to support the student. And then they start to do those things. And then they find out it supports many students because (laughs) all the brains are thinking differently in the room. And it's the same thing in the workplace. Like, there can just be, you know, I, I am working with an employee resource group right now to put together some training and it's, you know, just some very simple things. Like sometimes I need longer to process the information. So if you can, I can hear it, you can give it to me in writing, but please don't ask me what my questions are right now. I don't know, but I will in a few hours or maybe tomorrow once I've had some time to like, let that sit and distill. That costs nothing. It's just a thing that's different than the way we've always done things, which is give a handout or, 
or just talk at someone. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be hard. Yeah. It and doesn't I, have to be expensive. I think part of the problem when you move it into the work environment, where, of course, we're talking about often does the person keep their job or not keep their job, uh, or will they get a promotion or will they forever be stuck where they're, they're at? It gets down to uh, to things that are branded as being negative, but when you sit down and think about it, is it really negative? Uh, for instance, with, with autistics, it's pretty common for us to ask lots and lots and lots of detailed questions. Right. And we often then get labeled as, oh, they're just nitpicking and they, they just want to stir up problems and they're looking for a problem and on and on and on of all the negative ways people like to twist that one. And what I always explain is it's because as an autistic, we think differently. We, we think through the details. And right. once we get all the details in, we then go and build our own 50,000 foot view. Versus most yes. people who start from a 50,000 foot view and go down to the details or it, they don't actually, mo- most people never make it to the details. They only go deep enough to get the job done. Then they're out of there. We yes. start with all the details and we know there's more details. <laughs> and once you give us all the details, we'll create our own overarching uh, concept of how they all fit together. And That's why we come up with innovation, because we didn't start with a preconceived idea of how it works. We said, just give us all the details and I'll, but trying to get managers to understand that, no, this person isn't trying to be a problem. They're not trying to be the the biggest pain in your (laughs) rear end that that ever lived. Their brain functions in a different manner and they're going to assemble the information differently. And the benefit you're going to get out of that is you are going to get unique perspectives that you've never seen in your life before. Now, are they right all the time? No, but isn't the whole idea of diversity to try and get all different kinds of perspectives so we can pick the ones that's best for the situation because any one of us can't think of all of them at the same time? Yeah. And I, you know, I encourage to lean in at those times when you like, if you don't understand why someone's asking that question or, in my case, sometimes I don't communicate my ideas very clearly when speaking. And I think what I've said makes sense, but people just kind of stare at me blankly and then move on. But then I found that they'll come around to that idea, like four brainstorming sessions later, because their brains were ready, but mine had already bopped around. Like, lean into that and just be like, tell me more about that because somebody is seeing something that you're not seeing. And yes, isn't that exactly what you want? Like, that's cool. Bring that. I had this, I have this client and she is uh, an executive assistant and she's struggling uh, with the interview process. And so we're sort of teasing apart all the different questions that could be asked and what are they really asking for when they ask you that question. And in the process, she's explaining to me, like, she asks a lot of questions of, um, you know, whoever her supervisors are, whoever she's working for. So that, and she's building in her brain this like amazing dossier of who they are, what their preferences are. So that when they are traveling or she needs to solve a problem for them, like she's got it. It's all there. And she's creating this amazing filing system, but she has a very difficult time explaining 
that and it, it comes across very simple well, I have this color coding system and it's like well that sounds very juvenile but it's like the, but it's this whole amazing sits in her head and, and she can't get it across and they're not hearing her and she's struggling with the interview which anyone will be so lucky to have her because of the way her brain works yeah, it's, it's so interesting. Detail-oriented. The, the whole interview thing is, is interesting. I actually wrote a book on uh, on interviewing. And uh, it, it came because I got fired so many times, I had to get really good at interviewing. And I have a, uh, a sales and marketing background uh, before I got into the tech world. So I, I just think of interviewing as a sales, uh, sales job. Uh, right. And to me, I think where people mess up interviewing the most and I think what you're doing, you're, you're doing a lot of great things that will help people get on track with interviewing. Uh, but what I always see is where they mess up the most is they don't come up with the stories ahead of time of answering those questions. Right. You, yeah. you and I right now could come up with 10 questions and, uh, and in virtually any interview, at least six of them are going to get asked. Yes. So why not have... You know, preconceived. Not not that it's going to come off like you've memorized it line for line verbatim, but you've at least got in your head. This is the situation. <laughs> this is what went on. This is what I learned. This is the benefit it's going to give you. Yes, that's what we were doing. It was like this. What this question? We took like seventy five. I just googled seventy five interview questions for executive assistant. And it's like, they'll ask this question, but what are they looking for? They're looking for you to show problem solving. They're looking for you to show initiative. They're looking for you to show solving complex social situations. They're looking for you to like work well under pressure. And then you have a story for each of those. And so no matter what way they ask the question, you have the answer because you've already, you know that this is how I show that. Right, right. And I think yeah. even even part of it is just giving people the formula of the story. The, the, there's mm-hmm. a form, formula. And to me, the formula is, and, and everybody has their, their own favorite. I'm not saying mine's the, the perfect formula. Of course, it's perfect. I made it up. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but the formula is, first off, you have to take an example out of your own life. You, 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 can't, you can't use examples from somewhere else that's not your own life because it then doesn't come across as being really that you have this ability, skill, or, or whatever. So you've got, to, you've got to take it from something in your own personal experience. Now, you can spin a few things in your own personal experience. I'm not saying lie, but uh, yeah. f- find something that maybe isn't exactly identical, but is close. Then I think you have to tell what happened. Okay, whatever it was. I, I you know, needed to do X, Y, Z. This this went wrong and I was had to solve it. Uh, I got a call at uh, 11 p.m. and the hotel had thrown the person out because they were, I don't know, putting migrants in or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and um, then you, you tell them, this is how I solved it. This is what I did. I did A, I yes. did A, I did C. And to me, and this comes from the sales background, the last part is, what's the benefit to the employer from you from that experience you had? Right. Yeah. And I, I think that it doesn't matter whether it's an executive assistant, whether you're a tech person, a computer programmer, an engineer, a, that same formula works because it relates in a story format that humans can relate to. And you're clearly telling them what's in it for them because you did experience that. Right. It's... uh 
it's an art, <laughs> a little bit part art, part science, putting it together to, and it, yeah. So then interviews, 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 uh-huh. interviews, <laughs> Speaking about interviews, and one, one thing that is going on in the neurodiversity community is there's, you know, there's um, well, obviously, there's been different uh, hiring programs, job programs that different companies have implemented. And they've often used alternative interviewing approaches and styles. So not the traditional sit down across the table and you ask questions and I respond and there we go. Now, I'm not going to say that uh, that's, they're bad. I I think the traditional interviewing process is broken and uh, um, I can't remember which company, one of the big major tech companies spent like a fortune studying their own interviewing process and they came down to the conclusion that uh, they, they could get just as good a person by random chances with going through their interviewing process. Uh, right. So, yeah, I, I'm not saying that uh, the interviewing process shouldn't change, but a lot of the neurodiversity community is pushing, it seems, that they want the interview process to be changed so it fits them better. And my answer is, I agree, 100%, it should change. But unfortunately, in the world we're in, 99.9% of the companies use this style now. Yeah. And you've got to learn to work with the style, even though... In a perfect world, would it work differently? Yes. But unfortunately, in this world we live in, this is the way most companies interview. Yeah. And so if you find that this is an area like this is where the coaching comes in, which honestly, when I became a coach, I didn't even I didn't even understand the world of coaching. But now I understand it's huge. Get a coach for anything. And so if this is an area that you're struggling in, get some help. I mean, Again, it comes back to the idea that we're all expected to be good at all the things. Like, that's ridiculous. And so um, that I never thought I was going to be coaching somebody on how to do job interviews. That was just, that's <laughs> what she came to me with. And I was like, okay, well, we can, you know, see how we do together with this. And I found it incredibly interesting because it's interesting for me to dissect the social situation and try to see what it really is. And then like from an analytical point of view, like I really enjoy doing that. But yeah, if you're, if you're struggling with, with the interview, get some help. It's okay. There are all sorts of people who are getting the job because they weren't the best interviewer. So get a coach. I I like to say that uh, interviewing is not a job skill for most people. Right. 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 It's not it's one not. of the things you put on your resume. I'm really good at interviewing. Uh, it's just it's just not a job skill. It's not something that they uh, they teach you in school. Uh, it, it's something you just are thrown into and you go figure it out. And most people don't figure it out very well. Uh, but when I was writing yeah. my, my book on interviewing, I uh, interviewed uh, a whole bunch of uh, recruiters and HR people and hiring managers because I'd gotten fired a lot. So I got to know a lot of different <laughs> people like that and it was really interesting what they uh i had a one question that i asked them all was if you have a person that's completely qualified for the job what is it they do that makes them lose the job lose the interview and it blew me away what the answer was uh it was nothing that i ever would have expected and it's something that anybody could could ace this one but they just don't know it's actually this important and it was right they didn't show enough excitement about the job and the company. Okay. 
And that, that yeah. was the number one reason why somebody that is completely qualified, they would pass on them. So when you think about it, how it hard sense. is it at the end of the interview to go, this sounds like just the exact job I've always been looking from. And man, this company is so great. I would, when can I start? <laughs> right? Yes. Let them know. I mean, actually say, yes, I want to be here. This is just, this is wonderful. Um, but yeah. something that simple is, I, I haven't seen anybody else teaching people that uh, that's what they should do at interviews, but the people they're doing hiring tell me that's a, a major factor in who they pick. That's good to know. I, I, yeah, I like I am not a job coach. I, I had no idea. Uh, even the job coaches so. don't know. So, uh, so no. <laughs> okay, well, good. No, I don't feel so bad. <laughs> well, it was one of she those. Did okay, she got a job. Cool, cool. No, it, it was one of those things that if I hadn't interviewed all these people who do make the hiring decisions, and actually asked them the question of why do people lose when they are fully qualified, I never would have found out. So it's, it's not one of those common knowledge things. I just kind of came about it in a roundabout manner. And it's so obvious when you think about it, though. It, it, yes. But it's not something that comes to you very obvious. When it's pointed out to you, it's, it's so obvious of like, yeah, if one person's qualified, another person qualified, but one person's just jumping up and down saying, I can't wait to start. When, you know, can, can I start? Tomorrow? How about right now? Can I start right now? This sounds so great. Yeah. Well, who, what do you want? The person that's excited or the person that says, geez, thank you for interviewing me. When, when is it that I might hear from you? And, you know, you have to practice that excitement because you're going to be nervous and anxious and... I mean, it's such, like you said, it's just such the skill that we don't use often enough to be good at it because. You know, just, just speaking in job it. interviewing, this is, uh, I, I think there's a, a couple times you have to practice some skills that you need. And one is when you walk in and greet everybody. And at that point, you, you better be able to express happy at, at a very high level. You, you, you want to be beaming like the sun with happiness <laughs> because everybody likes a happy person. Right. And matter of fact, they're yeah. even curious. Why are you so happy? My life sucks. What's, what, what, what's going on with you that you're so happy? I mean, what? I'm, I'm going to find out in this interview why you're so happy. <laughs> um, but it's amazing because it almost gets people on your side right from the beginning because you came up as happy. And, and happy is easy to do. It's, it's, it's easy to be come off as happy and then at the end i, I think that's the other place in the middle you, you can kind of just answer the questions and just you know be matter of fact uh, uh respectful not not you know disrespectful or anything but uh not not particularly having to sound a particular way you just answer their questions in the manner that answers what they're really asking for not what you know you think yes. they're necessarily asking for but I think it's really at the end is that that's the other point that you, you score points. And so the beginning is the old story that you only have one opportunity to make a first impression. And you want that first impression to be that you're a fun, happy, enjoyable person, not like a clown bouncing off the ceiling, but a, you're, you're a fun, upbeat, lively person. And at the end, it's the sincere, thank you so much for letting me interview. And I, and you're sincere about it. I, I would love to have this job and to work. I'm just bowled over. I just can't wait to hear from you because I'm so looking forward to working here. Yeah. And I love that. Like there's sort of like sincerity and vulnerability. Yeah. 
And I, I like that. Like even in the beginning, we're just like, I'm just, I'm just so grateful to be here. Thank you. I'm a little bit, you can even be like, I'm a little bit nervous. Cause that can be a little lighthearted. Um, and just, yeah, thank you. I just really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you, learn more about your company. And I would really love the opportunity to work for you and some sincerity, a little bit of vulnerability mixed in there. And that they can connect to that. It's an emotional connection. Right, right. That's the, uh, I guess that's the secret thing. And that's the part that I, uh, I also always talk about dealing with uh, interviews the way they are, is you can't change human nature. Human nature is human nature. It's, it's been inbred into us over eons of evolution is uh, human nature. And human nature responds to emotions. Human nature yeah. responds to, are you one of us or are you those people from the other side that we need to be fearful from because you're not safe? <laughs> and I think that's one problem that at least autistics often have is the, the flat affect, the monotone voice. They don't come across as being one of the tribe. Yeah. In which case then now you're suspicious of them. No matter how good all the answers are, how good their, their skill is, there's just something not right. And to me, that's the human nature part. And should it be that way? It would be nice if it wasn't, but uh, the reality is it is that way. And I think that's something that, oh, this would be an, this is an interesting question for you. Masking. How, how many people ask you about masking? The, the, the whole idea of you know, masking, of uh, having to f- do so much to fit in that you're basically just, you're, you're worn out. You're worn out just trying to fit in with the, the crowd, yeah. you have nothing left. Yeah, that's what my, yeah, my clients talk about that. Like all of them talk about that. That's an interesting thing because I, I think there's been an overemphasis Not on masking. All. Not all. Okay, I'm sorry. Not all, right? And maybe this is maybe based on what I heard you say earlier about you weren't worried about what other people were thinking or something along those lines. I do have some people that are just like, I was just always me. And I, 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 I so no didn't get it, why I didn't have any friends or anything like that. So not all of my clients talk about that. Some of them, and I think especially the female ones, are just like always trying to hold it together, always trying to be presentable, always trying to show that, it, that yeah, they're on top of things. And then they just fall apart. I, I think that there's a, a halfway point between the two. Masking, I think, is detrimental in the long run. You're, you're putting way too much energy into trying to please and be everybody else that isn't part of what your actual job role is that you need to get done that it just i mean it just erodes you over time it just wears you down and wears you down but i i think uh, i hear and maybe this is more with we'll say some younger generation than older generation so much complaint about oh i shouldn't have to mask i should be able to come in and just be me and be whoever i will show up the way i am and I've come up with this idea that I, I always talk about of tools. And the way I put it is, if you and I were to decide we wanted to go get some fine food and, uh, and look at great art and we're you know, going to go to some other country to do that, we might pick France, we might pick Italy, we might pick China. I mean, they've all got great art and I'm Japan. I mean, there's, there's lots of places we could go that have great art and fine food. But they, they use this thing that's called a different language. And if we were to learn a few words of their language, it probably would make the interaction and experience go a little better. Like, where's the bathroom? Was is kind of would be, you know, pretty helpful. And to me, that's not masking. That's just using a tool. So 
I think I hear too many people calling everything masking when some of it is simply utilizing a tool to improve the interaction with the other people that they have to work with. It's not changing who you are. It's simply right. using this tool. Uh, and you're using emotionality in your voice can be a tool. Yeah. And so, for example, this woman who was doing the, the job interviewing, she um, took literally the idea that you're that they that when you're invited in, they say, just just be yourself. And so she took that to heart. And so we had to talk about what that means. That doesn't really, but that's not, no, we're all in a performance. And then she was, she had a background of dance and theater and performance. I'm like, this is, we're all in a performance here. And that is not like, there's this balance. There's this middle of like, you want to show qualities of yourself, but you're also on high alert here because you are trying to be the very best selves that you can be to impress these people. And so we had to find, you know, the middle with that. It's the same thing with this other guy that I'm working with. And he um, wants to make more friends. And he was going for a, a hike with a friend. And we were just talking about how he knows that that person is enjoying themselves. And that, okay, now I, I'm losing my train of thought here. So I want to like slow it down and get back to what we're talking about, which was masking. But when you're getting to know someone, someone that you don't know really well, or even I said, even with my friends, if we're going out and it's dinner, I mean, there's still a little bit that you put on as far as like, I want to be engaging. I want to be entertaining. I want to make sure that I've thought a little bit about what's going on in their lives so I can ask questions. And so like, there is a little bit of a performance going on, especially if you're going for a hike with someone that you're trying to get to know. So I think masking has become one of those like overutilized words that that unfortunately takes away from people who really struggled so much in school and in their younger lives to understand the social world, but they just had to build this whole persona. And I do work with clients where you're just kind of like starting to take a little bit of that way to find out who you really are. Cause you've just like spent so much of your life trying to be who you thought other people wanted you to be to a very intense level, not just like these subtle levels of interviewing, getting to know people and things like that, that, that they don't even know who they are truly inside of themselves and to start to pull that away. So yeah, it's the, a word that's sort of been, unfortunately, uh, I don't know. It's, it's taken away from, people's legitimate experiences. Right. And, and I agree with you that there is such a thing as masking, as you say, the person that takes it to the point where it becomes all consuming to try and be the person that fits in, as opposed to simply, uh, I guess we don't have to pay attention to it. Who was it? Who was it that they wrote the book of etiquette? Uh, who, I don't know. You remember, it goes back, whatever. There was some, you know, somebody said, whatever, book of etiquette of uh, these yes. were the, the rules that if you're, you're going to dinner, this is the way you, you do things. And, yes. Well, that's not masking. That's just following a set of uh, conventions that uh, we as humans have come up with so we can have civilization because we, we can't have mayhem. There's got to be some general set of flow that we follow. Um, we can't yes. be going every which way. But uh, on the other hand, uh, nobody should be forced to be who they aren't. Um, yes. But be who you are within bounds of what's reasonable for the situation. <laughs> So, yeah, it's a good way to look at it. it. 
if, if somebody is struggling, uh, maybe they've, they've heard their, uh, their kid, uh, their kid psychiatrist or I don't know, therapist or whatever it is talking about these different things and it's ringing a bell or they had a neurodiversity presentation at their work or they you know, listen to a TED talk or whatever. Um, and they're, they're thinking that, uh, gosh, that, that, is ringing a bell and maybe it's making sense why I'm having challenges. What, what kind of challenges, what kind of things would be uh, uh, appropriate things that you could help somebody with? You know, I mean, obviously I don't get to worry about the specifics, but what are the general kind of general categories, general areas that uh, would be something that somebody uh, might think about reaching out to you and, and saying, Hey, I've, I've been struggling and I didn't know about this. And I read about this thing and like, Hmm, I'm trying to put it all together now. Some of my clients uh, come to me because they want some help better managing their time, their attention, their focus. Uh, so those are sort of executive functioning sorts of skills, problem solving, decision making, prioritizing. How do I know what's important? How do I get going on a task that I don't know how to start on? How do I get started? How do I switch between tasks? Those kinds of things are generally impulsivity. Those are all executive functioning skills that um, people will come to me for coaching on. Uh, I also find that my clients uh, come to me with some emotional regulation needs. So as I, we kind of talked about before, where they are maybe too escalated too often and escalate very quickly as far as being a little more trigger, quicker to trigger. And so we work on that to kind of like narrow that window down and slow it down so that you don't trigger quite as quickly. Um, so clients are coming to me for that. And then uh, I'm also, so those are sort of like their goals. But then in the meantime, we, um, as we start to unpack and dig a little deeper into what's going on, um, I use a lot of mindfulness in my program to be more present. And this is ongoing throughout the day. So it's not necessarily extended periods of sitting like meditation, but just more of a presentness so that you have a pause, a space between the thing that is happening to you and how you respond to it. And that can be part of the emotional regulation, but it can also be part of an impulsivity. It can also be uh, managing the negative thoughts that we've been building up over our lifetime and starting to let go of those and know that this is how my brain works and I'm okay. So that's a big part of my program that we add. Uh, my clients come to me, oh yeah, unpacking social situations. So, I mean, we're deciphering text messages together or we're deciphering conversations together or, you know, the subtleties of all of that, you know, the job interview conversation that we had. Um, and then, oh, energy regulation is something that I work with my clients on as well. So how to manage when it's just sapping you of all of your energy for whatever reason. Um, but you don't think as quickly, you don't transition as quickly, and the task takes more energy out of you than maybe it does a typical person. So how do we manage that so you don't completely melt down and go blank? Uh, recovery tools and preparation tools for pre preparing for a task and recovering from a task, um, those kinds of things. So those are some of the things I'm working on with my clients right now. 
Great. So I'm going to put you on the spot now. Here, here comes the hard Okay. Part. Oh, geez. So, uh, so, so if you could give one piece of advice to, to somebody who uh, suddenly discovered they're neurodistinct and, uh, or thinks they are, what's one piece of advice you would give? You, got one to, you only got one thing. One thing you can give them. That's it. Told you it'd be a hard one. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm like running through it all. And I really, I mean, as I kind of mentioned before, mindfulness is a really huge part of my program that I use with all of my clients, regardless of what they come to me for. And so I would say to take a mindfulness course and figure out what that means as far as the purpose of it is to this emotional thing has happened outside of you, inside of you subtle triggers this emotional thing has happened how can you recognize that and once you've been able to recognize that and and sort of call it out for what it is it's become less emotional and more of the executive functioning part of your brain where you can then choose how you want to respond so mindfulness and that can be to support your emotions that can be to support your energy that can be to support your impulsivity that can be to support your distractibility all of those things i use mindfulness with and so that is what i would encourage i think it is the one tool that i use with all of my clients no matter what wonderful wonderful you did pretty good for being put on the spot for one thing you did great so <laughs> Jeannie, you. if uh, if somebody wanted to reach out to you and uh, find out if you might be uh, the answer to their struggles, what's the best way for them to reach you? I have a website. You can find me on there, genielove.coach, G-E-N-I-E-L-O-V-E.coach. And from the website, you can book a call with me. I'll, I'll chat with you. And, you know, we can talk about what's going on with you. I love to brainstorm strategies and happy to do that, whether you choose to work with me or we decide that we're a good fit for each other or not. You can email me. My email's on that website as well. And then my social media is LinkedIn. I try not to get distracted too much by social media. So I just focus primarily on LinkedIn. You can find me there and I, I you know, send me a message and I'd love to connect. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking this time this evening. Um, our, our listeners don't know, it, but this is uh, uh, the evening of Memorial Day of uh, 2023. And I can't think of a better way to uh, wrap up the weekend than having had a wonderful chat with you. So I uh, appreciate it so much. You're taking the time and uh, joining and, and sharing everything with uh, you, with our listeners and with me. So Thank you very much, Jeannie. Thank you, Tim. It was really nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, thank you very much. Na, na, na. We hope that you've enjoyed another episode of Life in a Neurotypical Universe. Please, if you enjoyed this, share it with your friends. Go take their phone and subscribe them. Hey, it will help us all out. If you want to know more about neurodiversity or have any questions for me, you can reach me at my website, timgoldstein.com where I'll be more than glad to help you as best I can to navigate through the neurotypical universe.